You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wyatt, Terry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Robin Mock, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I am super excited to have Jennifer Robson back on the show with me today. She was with us last year talking about her uh, phenomenal book, The Gown. And uh, today, we're talking about a brand new book that she has out called Our Darkest Night. And, you know, as we're collecting new books for the new year and... You know, all of our fingers are crossed that 2021 is going to be a much better experience than 2020 was. And we're so happy to have 2020 in the rearview mirror. What a better book to start your year off with than Our Darkest Night. Um, Jennifer Robson tackles um, historical fiction like no other person does. And this book is uh, is a true joy to to have on your shelf. And I highly recommend everyone grab it. Jennifer, thank you. Uh, for joining me again today. Thank you. What a lovely introduction. <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting here uh, just feeling a glow. That's uh, very kind of you. Well, thank you. Uh, so Jennifer, uh, what's been going on this last year for you? Well, my husband and I joke that we've had a lot of precious family togetherness. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, it, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, we've actually been completely fine. I I can't complain that against what so many people have been going through and continue to go through. Um, you know, we we both have work. Um, our we we've, we're both we're both well. Our children are well. Our children are in school for the most part, which is a real blessing. Um, you know, I have lots of friends whose kids are doing at home schooling, and that is a challenge, not just for parents but for students uh for the teachers oh my goodness they all deserve medals right now um and uh yeah so the first part of the year i was finishing uh work on our darkest night and i have to say it was pretty interesting working on a book set in world war ii uh with the backdrop of the world once again thrown into crisis a really different crisis but there were so many parallels um just in terms of that whole um, chin up, uh, we'll get through this together. You know, all the World War II songs kept coming back to me, and uh, they seem to have a real resonance uh, in terms of you know just the only way through is through. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, speaking of uh, school and kids, my son, my oldest son, is a uh, seventh grade English teacher. And he, you know, this getting to hear him kind of download on all of the struggles and, you know, what it means to to actually try to teach kids. And, you know, are we in school this week? Are we not? Are we doing virtual? Do You know, are some kids doing virtual, some not? And yeah. Wow. It's been a challenge. And it just, it's been so hard for so many people. And I really you know, again, I cannot complain. I, I really yeah. don't want to sound as if I complain about anything because, um, you know, we have we have access to Wi-Fi at home. We have access to devices 
Um, but you know, for a lot of families, that's a real challenge. And I just, I, you know, I, I, my heart is stretched in so many directions these days. Um, and, and I guess with the work I do, the only thing, the only way I can hope to make things better, um, for others in the only grand plan I have is, is, is to write a book, um, to give you a book. Uh, in which people have gone through similarly really hard times, um, yeah. but they've survived, and that that there's there's hope, right? There there's always that hope. It it may seem like a little point of light in the far distance, but it's there. What's going to be interesting, Jennifer, is seeing how a generation or two past us looks back on this time, uh, and uh, you know the. World War II historical fiction or things around World War II um, have been having uh, a, a a great resurgence, uh, maybe is is the is the proper word word the last couple of years. There's been my point is there's been a lot of great books about this time period that have that have come out the last couple of years, and I I often sit and think, but what is it about this time period? Um, that makes us so fascinated where we we just we long for more of the human stories of this time. And and uh, I have a theory that, you know, the, the farther we get away from an historical event, the more it, it gets reduced to bullet points, um, because oh, you're if, absolutely right. Yeah. You know, if, if you take history class uh, for an example, you can only you know, when you have a a time period to cover. Each of those events get distilled down to kind of the big happenings. And what ha- what happens there, uh, I theorize, is that we lose all of the human stories, all of the, the stories of the characters that we could connect with. Maybe they're family members. Maybe they're someone who went through things similar to what our family members went through. But we can connect with this time through stories and through characters of this time. And yeah. uh, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, because World War II has, you know, now we're two decades away from 100 years ago. And, yeah. you know, I had uh, grandparents and great uncles and things that served in the war and they're all gone on now. Um, but, you know, these were people that I sat and talked to as a as a kid um, and they're all gone now. Yeah. So we, we hold on to these stories, but it's going to be interesting 100 years from now to see what people look back on this time period and, and how they interpret it. It's going to be, going to be really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I wonder whether I'll have a great grandchild who will decide to make their living uh, writing historical fiction, uh, maybe set in this time period. I mean, that's the, that's the great thing about historical fiction um, and specifically the kind of historical fiction that I like to read and, and well, that I write. Um, in that it's it's focused not on these big moments. It, you know, it's important to know the big no- moments. You know, you can't really be in a story and you can't teach it unless you know, you know, the, 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 all the all the big plot points, as it were. But you also cannot lose sight of of the the individual stories of of the humanity at the heart of um, uh, people's. You know, the the the, the people who live through that period and their stories and it's really easy to do with something as big as the second world war then the numbers are so numbing 
you know, when you, when you get into the millions, it's very hard to remember that behind each, each, uh, you know, individual, um, uh, person caught up in the war, you know, there's a whole lifetime of stories. And particularly when people were killed, um, before they, you know, it, you know, in, I mean, war is unnatural and that it, it, people die who would otherwise have lived much fuller, longer lives. And that's something that, you know, the great First World War poet, uh, Wilfred Owen, uh, talked about, um, you know, there's this one line in one of his poems where he said, strange meeting, where he says, foreheads of men have bled where no wounds were. And what he's trying to get at is that, is that, you know, if, if, if it had not been for the, the war, uh, that these men that he's talking about, specifically these soldiers would have gone on and, and, and lived lives and who knows what they would have done. And so then you look at the Second World War. And I mean, when you're talking about tens of millions of people, it's, it's really hard to wrap your head around it, that, that volume of, of loss and suffering. And, and I think it, it's numbing in term, just intellectually, but it can also kind of numb your, your heart, really. And so what I'm trying to get at uh, in this book and the other books I've written is the stories, the individual people who went, what was it like? Uh, what did it feel like to be caught up in this, in this terrible time? And a terrible time that, that, like any time in history, has wonderful moments caught up in it as well which of course makes it a little more complicated to write about. Um, and, but I think that's the reason this war just has such a hold over us. And it will do for decades, um, even as direct memories uh, are lost and that we won't be able to talk to anyone who, who, who lived through it uh, before too long. Um, and that's you know where people like me come in, uh, historians, novelists, um, artists who want to kind of preserve the memories, um, but also explore those memories and ask what they tell us about our as human. Um, and, and I'm not sure. I, I may move away from the wartime period to here and there, uh, but I feel as if it's a period I'm going to come back to again. So from our last conversation uh, last year when we talked, um, I, I think I remember that your your father was a uh, uh, was a, a a history professor. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And and uh, I, I assume that that you get uh, your part of your love of history from there. But I, if I remember right, we had this conversation about that people assume that he's where you get your love of historical fiction. That's and that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. It, which I'm so glad you remember that it was actually my mom who is the great okay. fiction reader. And she had, you know, all the stuff through the 1970s and eighties, you know, these big, you know, the 1980s were a great period for really massive, yes. massive door works of historical fiction uh, the door stoppers. Right. I mean, and, uh, um, and I, you know, I can't imagine myself writing a book that's that long. Uh, you know, my, my personal, I just love a book that hits between the 350 and the 400 page mark, you know, sitting there just a hair over a hundred thousand words. That's the sweet spot for me. Um, but you know, I, I certainly grew up on those, on those novels and I think they kind of, they, they gave me a love of 
not just the history and the history, of course, it was just everywhere in my house. Um, something we talked about all the time. Um, you know, I had my, my grandmother and my grandfather were, were, were caught up in World War II as journalists. Um, so it was, it was, you know, something that, that loomed large. Um, and, you know, my mom, my mom died when I was only 21. So she, she hasn't been around to, to see this work that I've done. Um, but I like to think when I write a book that it's the kind of thing that if she were around, I could put in her hands and say, I think you'll like this book, mom. Um, because what she loved about historical fiction were, again, the stories, the, the personal stories, the social history that's wrapped up in it. I mean, I trained as a social historian. That's what, what my degree uh, is, my, my DPhil, as they call it at Oxford, or my PhD is in social history. It's not in the it's not in the big sweeping questions of the time. It's 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 um, it's kind of a deeper examination of uh, well the 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 doctoral thesis itself is indescribably boring. But what I was really <laughs> interested in uh, were the daily lives, ordinary lives of of just regular people, and and the shape of those lives. Um, and I went about it by looking at how just the issue of clothing, not fashion, just clothes, affected the lives of uh, from around the time of the end of the First World War to the end of the Second World War. Um, and, and, you know, what it gave me was an appreciation uh, for even in times that, you know, that weren't during the war, say in that interwar period, that there's so much work involved in in people's daily lives, apart from their actual work. Um, just the labor involved in everything is something I think we, we, we don't really appreciate. I think probably the people who would appreciate it most in this day and age would be farmers, for example, in terms of just the, the, just the, the, the huge amount of work that begins the minute you open your eyes in the morning and doesn't end fall asleep. And, uh, and that's something that, again, you know, in these in the, the past year in the pandemic months of uh, sitting at home and, and and occasionally feeling a little hard done by uh, that, you know, some of the things that I would get used, I've been used to, I, I didn't have access to uh, whenever I found myself starting to feel a little grumpy, uh, I would try and remember what it was like for uh, my grandparents, my great grandparents. Um, and, and, you know, if we're talking about uh, this book that has just come out, um, my husband's family who were farmers in Northern Italy, and uh, if they, if they wanted to eat, they had to work uh, in a way that is completely foreign to, to many of us today. And um, certainly is foreign to my own children. Who, yeah. Who, who I'm constantly reminding, you know, what their nona no no, uh, and and their great grandparents, you know, what what it costs those people, uh, in terms of of work and sacrifices, uh, so that my children could live this life of of really of luxury, um, and and you know they, I'm nobody suggesting that my children go out and work in the fields. I've had moments, I must say. <laughs> I've had moments, but but nobody's saying they have to do that. I want to honor the people that came. And I think in some ways, uh, 
one of the things that motivated me when I wrote Our Darkest Night was was to honor uh, that generation that lived through the war, the war and its aftermath, and the sacrifices many, many of them made, um, and just the work. Uh, yeah, the work involved. It, it, it's just it's humbling when I look at the shape of my ordinary day, set it against the day of say my husband's grandmother. I really have I, nothing to compare about, to I, complain about, I must say. I feel like that when you take on a project like this, that um, you would almost need to feel a personal connection with the the, the story that you're telling. Because, um, uh, you know, there's all sorts of fiction that gets told uh, as the writer is just sitting there daydreaming and just, just thinking things up and uh, and the story unfolds from there. But when you're dealing with a time period and a people and the circumstances that uh, a, a book like Our Darkest Night tackles, that you would need to feel some sort of personal connection there to to get your husband's story. Is that the personal connection for you? So the personal connection is one of these things that and, you know, I think this happens to a lot of people, especially now as as the kind of the, the wartime generation is becoming quite elderly. And, you know, those of us um, with questions are maybe asking them maybe a little more forcefully than we might have done when, say, we were, you know, teenagers or kids. Um, so we were visiting Italy, uh, this be coming up five years ago. It was my husband's 50th birthday, and we my, just the two of us had gone to Italy, shockingly, leaving the children behind. Everyone there was horrified that we had not brought the children with us, but we we just wanted a week of of being in Italy, and um, so we we visited my husband's family there. And his dad, his late father, was one of twelve, uh, and his late mother is one of five. So there is an abundance still of aunts and uncles and cousins and second cousins and just you name it. I mean, there are many many relatives to visit. And a few days into our visit there, and I should add that. He comes from, uh, his parents came from, uh, a little, beautiful little town called San Zenone delle Etzvini, uh, which is in the Veneto. It's about, you know, by car, about 45 minutes from uh, the, you know, the mainland near Venice uh, up, up to, in the direction of the, you know, uh, northwest towards, um, you know, if you imagine you're, you're heading towards Austria and the, and the Alps. And so it's in the foothills of the mountains. Um, beautiful, beautiful countryside. And they don't get a ton of tourists there. It's a, a pretty quiet town. Um, and so we were visiting uh, his uh, Zia Maria, his Aunt Maria, uh, who is in her uh, late 80s now and had been a little girl during the war. And uh, they were speaking in the local dialect, which is a Venetian dialect, uh, which, you know, it, is not Italian. I mean, it bears a lot of resemblance to Italian, um, but it's it's in its own way a different language. And I can um, I can understand it reasonably well. Uh, you know, when people are talking about ordinary things like the weather and the food and people's health and so on. Um, and my husband was asking Zia Maria, um, just he, he he was interested in asking her about the war. You know, what what was it like on the farm and. And we'd heard some stories, um, but, you know, we'd never 
really talk that much with with his parents about the war, even though they knew what I did for a living. They they read my earlier book, um, and so she was. It wasn't that she was reluctant. It's just that she's not used to talking about it. Um, you know, there's that reticence that that is. You know, this is not an uncommon thing for people to be reticent when talking about the war because it's also a time of trauma for many people. Why would you want to go? digging up terrible memories. Um, but she was willing enough. And, and at some point in the conversation, which I was mostly uh, following, I, I knew that Claudio would bring me up to speed later. I heard she used the word Edre, uh, which immediately got my attention because it's the word for, for Jewish or, or a Jewish person. Um, and, and I just... I remember I kind of clutched at my husband's sleeve and was, what, 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 what is this? And, and he was, you know, he kind of did, she's talking, she's talking. (laughs) And, um, and one of the other sentences that kind of untangled itself, uh, and, and here my accent is terrible when I'm speaking, uh, the dialect, but she said, Tonono y Gasconti. And, and what that translates as is, your no, no, he, he, um, he hid them. Oh, wow. uh, and so I feel as that I was ready to fall off the chair. I mean, oh yeah, it, it just was crazy to me. And I had been part of this family at that point for something close to twenty years, and I had never heard a thing about anything like hiding Jewish people. Like what hiding where? And so we we dug in a you know there's you're not about to put the thumbscrews to you know your elderly aunt there's a limit to how much we could press her right <laughs> right uh, but but within the context of what she felt comfortable about talking about you know we didn't want to tire her out and, and so on but it, it came out and then we talked to her younger sister who hadn't been a, alive during the war but Gianja Rosa you know was born uh, right after the war actually and kind of grew up in that post-war period and and knew all the family stories. And again, it, it wasn't so much that she'd ever kept the story from us. She just hadn't, it had never occurred to her to tell us. And so it came out that um, it, the, the parish priest, the local parish priest uh, during the war, when things were starting to kind of really go sideways. So this would be 1943, the Nazi occupation had begun, um, at, you know, and I mean, you know, Italy had been under fascist rule for decades at that stage. Let's not let's not whitewash things, but things got appreciably worse uh, from forty three onwards. Um, and the village priest came to her parents, uh, this, so my husband's grandparents and his aunt's parents came to them, um, and uh, and their names were um, uh, Giovanni and, and Emma. And came to them and asked if they would be willing to hide people uh, who were in danger of, you know, being arrested and deported and and Lord knows what else. Uh, These were people that had come to him for help and he he felt that he had to help them, um, that it was the only right thing to do. And, um, And if they did agree, it would have to be in complete secrecy uh, for everyone's sake. And so they they agreed. And over the course of the years, that we believe they took in as many as three different families who would stay for a period and then move on. 
Um, and one family they became very close to and they stayed for quite a long time. And then after the war, um, my late mother-in-law and one of her sisters even went to visit them. I mean, again, she never told me this. <laughs> I wow. just, if all the, all the, if I could just have Ma back for one conversation, oh, to just, to just ask her these questions. Oh, I, I, I really wish I could ask. So, so we had these stories, but at that point they were just stories. I right. mean, you know, there was no way I, I couldn't prove any of it. And it's not, not for one moment do I think that anybody was making this up or, or lying. That's not the case. It's more that memory can be very fallible sure. and it can be easy to kind of, um, to, to just get a, a, a slightly incorrect impression of something and then it builds up. So I, it, I would never accuse anyone of, of being untruthful, but sometimes memories can get a little bit twisted around. And I, I, I wanted to kind of, I needed to know more. The historian in me needed to know more. So I started uh, by, uh, by contacting Yad Vashem in Israel at the World Holocaust uh, um, Remembrance Center. And, um, and it turned out that uh, they, they, were, they were right about the priest um, because their local priest, uh, whose name was Father uh, Odo Stoko. Um, he was uh, recognized by Yad Vashem in 2010 and was named Righteous Among the Nations, which is a, a quite a, a rare distinction. You know, there's, there's um, I'm not sure the number in total, but I think it's somewhere between 20 and 30,000 people worldwide have been given that honor, uh, which when you think of relative to the number of people who are living in, in Europe during the war, it's a pretty small number. Um, so he was recognized as having saved more than 50 Jews uh, during the war by hiding them among his prisoners and, uh, and, and supporting them and, and, uh, and, and just really, you know, preventing uh, their arrests and deportations, because we know what happened to those who were deported. Uh, they were sent to Birkenau, Auschwitz-Birkenau, and they were murdered. Um, almost everyone who was deported was murdered. Vanishingly few survived. So one thing is that, in, in, and Yad Vishen recognized this, that a handful of the local prisoners were also honored um, because the people they rescued were still alive. Uh, rescued, helped to save. I mean, I think the people they helped did their own rescuing, frankly. But, um, but you know, they were there to bear testimony. Um, but it, they also recognized that that was only a portion of people in San Zanone, because effectively the whole village was in on it. You know, there were people hiding in many, many houses in the village uh, because of Father uh, Father Stoko. And so it's my belief that my husband's grandparents were among them. And I'll say candidly, I can't prove it. Uh, they're not alive. Uh, we don't really have any names. No one can remember the names of the people we think they might have helped. So that, that's gone, right? I can't recreate that. Right. And so the question for me next was, well, what do I do with this knowledge? Um, and I didn't want to turn it into a work of nonfiction. I didn't want to fictionalize their story. That just felt wrong on every level. Sure. 
But what I could do was use that as a as an inspiration uh, point um, in terms of asking myself, well, what was it like to be one of the people who had to go into hiding? What was it like to to lose everything? Uh, you know, your not just your your belongings in your home and your profession, but also your your nationality. To be told that even though you had been born in Italy, you'd grown up in Italy, uh, your 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 language was Italian, your cultural identity was Italian. That suddenly you were not Italian. That you were not wanted. That you were uh, an alien. As, as people as, as Italian. Jews were officially described. They were alien and thus subject to all the indignities that go along with that. What was that like? And and so the character of Antonina revealed herself to me quickly. I could I could just see her. Yeah, I could hear her voice. I could I could listen in on her thoughts. And it and she's the character that took me from Venice. Uh, into the unknown of, uh, you know, when she when she's sent into hiding by her father, and she's sent to stay with this complete stranger. Um, she is, you know, who she has some assurances from her father and her father's friend, who's the parish priest in the little village they're going to. That the man she's being sent to live with is a decent man, a good man, but does she really know? Um, and, you know, and on top of everything else, she has to pretend that she's married to him um, so that people will believe the story they've concocted. Uh, and so I send her off into this world of unknown and has to figure out a way to survive. And it was that's my attempt to to kind of bring to life just one possible story among the thousands uh, of true stories. Uh, that happened to the Italy's Jews in this period, um, and it's it's a story that hasn't been told that much. Interestingly, it has set it against the dozens and dozens, hundreds of books, um, I, I, you know, set in uh, that have been written in, in in recent years that are set in uh, in Poland, in Germany, and France, um, talking about what happened during the Holocaust. Um, and I just had this question of, I, you know, I hadn't, again, read, seen much that directly addressed what happened to Italy's Jews during the war. And I, I wanted to know. Um, so that's where, and it just started in terms of my attaching it to an idea of a book. It started with my son asking me if the stories were true. And yeah. I had to tell him I wasn't sure. And, it, and so that led me. That led me on my detective, you know, uh, hunt, and um, and it ended up with our darkest night. I love it, and I'm I'm hoping that through um, books like our darkest night that we get to fill in some shading uh, of what we yeah. understand of history because um, we all know uh, the stories of what happened in Germany. Uh, and but there were there was so much more suffering and so much more human conflict um, 
all over the world at that time. And, and you know, the stories are, are relentless. I I think we will be uncovering and fleshing out these for, for years and years and years to come. And uh, so as someone who is uh, trained as an historian, but also writes historical fiction, um, how do you, um, how do I ask this? Um, how do you feel um, that the two different works, one's a, a pure history mm-hmm. and historical fiction, um, and if, if historical fiction is done correctly, then we know that the the personal stories are made up, but it still conveys truths of what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is where do where do these two different forms, um, how should we hold them as readers? So and that's it. That is a fantastic question. I think so. The thing with with narrative nonfiction history or any form of of, of history that, you know, even then, uh, even the most accomplished historian, the most diligent historian must admit that it is at some point uh, a, a work of reconstruction. Um, because, you know, let's think like things that even happened last week, we can all be a little hazy on. Sure. So go back decades, centuries, millennia. Um, and then to say that it is the absolute quite literal truth is, is a stretch is it a, is a claim that no historian should ever make. Um, so to that extent, when I'm creating fiction, it's not so very different, um, in, in the sense that, yes, I'm. I'm researching things diligently. I am doing my very best to provide an, an accurate portrait of the past. Um, but I, I have to be honest and say that uh, there are always going to be inaccuracies in the book. Uh, there is absolutely no way to know with certainty that what I'm talking about is, is the truth. Um, you know, and that, because that in itself is, I mean, how do, how do we judge that? Who, who stands there and, and like, like the, you know, the skating judges on, on the side in the Olympics <laughs> right. and, and says, this is a 10 out of 10. I mean, you know, the only thing that would resolve these questions is a time machine. And until physicists work that out for us, um, the best we can do, I think the best you can do is just to. Is, is to be diligent and to to do your absolute very best to not cut corners and um and and to accept that it, the end result will be by necessity imperfect to to some degree there just will be imperfections um now where i differ at writing fiction is that so i take the backdrop and i'd like to think that i create something that is as accurate as any piece of narrative nonfiction. And then on top of that backdrop, I layer in my characters and and the world, uh, say the characters and the events uh, that um, uh, you know move along the, the plot of the book and the events. Everything has to kind of fit onto the really. I guess I, I I've called it this before the scaffolding that I've created. Yeah. Uh, you know, everything has to hang off it just so. Um, and and to that degree, I I I I don't manipulate events. Uh, if you know, I I avoid that, 
Um, occasionally I will, uh, I may add in um, minor, minor details that uh, seem to be part of the historical record. I know they're not. And I try and address that in my author's notes, you know, when I, when I've actually made something up wholesale and made it seem as if it, you know, quite often by virtue of there being a real figure at the periphery. And it can sometimes seem to readers as if I'm talking about something that happened. And I, I want to be very careful to differentiate, you know, those, those moments in my books where, um, where Bishop brushes up, that seems like real events. Um, but, you know, I, I can admit, I mean, Antonina never existed. Nico didn't exist. His family didn't exist. The, the terrible Nazi that, that becomes part of the proceedings did not exist. But they're all inspired, um, not so much by actual people. There's there's no individual who inspired Antonina. Um, really, the only character in the book who has a direct parallel in real life is Father Bernardi, who was, uh, he's not a portrait of the real Father Stoko, but but he's more or less his equivalent in the book. Sure. Um, but, you know, they're, they're, they're works of fiction. Um, but, you know, they're grounded in truth, if right. that makes any sense. The, sure. Because the things that happen to them not only have to be possible within the, the understanding of what we know from the historical record, but they also have to be plausible. They have to make sense in just a broader, um, in a broader way. Uh, you know, if if something happens to Antonina in the book, uh, it just has to be something that that I can see possibly happening to another person. Um, and so, you know, and one thing I was very keen on um, when I was that I was determined not to do when I was writing this book was to take the experience of any real person who had uh, been caught up in the Holocaust uh, and subsume it into my story. That, that just the possibility of that, I, I found very troubling. So for example, and I don't want to give too much about a way about the book. Cause I think, it, you know, it just came out. I'm not okay. sure a lot of people would have had a chance to read it, but there are certain moments where Antonina is caught up uh, and and kind of thrown into moments that are that are, uh, you know, uh, part of the historical record um, sure. in terms of, of certain events that happened uh, uh, um, in the latter years of the war, and it would have been easy to just um, almost kind of remove a person from the historical record and pop. Nina into that person's place. And I, I, I just felt so wrong about doing that. So wherever, wherever Nina appears to be part of historical events, because I've added her rather right. than taken away from someone else. Sure. Um, that was really, really important to me. I just. That's an so, important distinction. It is. And it's one of these fine things that I'm not sure, you know, 99 out of 100 people reading the book would not ever notice it. I wouldn't want them necessarily to notice it. But or you to, notice. I notice it. Yeah. And, and I just think because the chance of somebody who has a personal connection with the Holocaust uh, and of, of say they're reading it and 
noticing it and being upset because I've got things wrong. That was too horrifying to me uh, for me to ever risk um, kind of playing fast and loose with the with the facts as we know them. Um, and uh, and when I say as we know them, I mean the facts are indisputable. Sure, uh, but we don't know all of the facts is what I right. mean to say. And right. that that you know there's so many layers of of human experience that of which we're ignorant um and and no one not even the most learned historian can profess to know the true depth uh the true the true kind of wellspring of of misery um that came out of the holocaust but I'm struggling a little bit to find my words because it, it's it's something that is so profound. I think it it actually defies description. Um, and but the thing is, is for as much as we will never, I don't think historians, artists, writers, we we will never plumb the depths of this moment in human history. Well, I just don't think we'll ever get to the bottom of it. But that's not a reason for us to stop trying. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, Our Darkest Night uh, is available everywhere now and is a glimpse into um, a period of time and events that that I was sorely ignorant of. And I know so many other people were. And and this book has helped to open my eyes uh, to the realities. Um, Jennifer, uh, I know this book has been off your desk for uh, probably uh, a couple of months now. Uh, you know, we we know how the publishing process goes. But what have you turned your attention to now? What can we expect from you uh, coming up next? I've returned to uh, Britain, uh, which, you know, I'm, I'm such an Anglophile uh, that that uh, it, it drew me back again. Um, and and it may seem on the surface that it's another Royals book that I'm writing, although it's really not. Um, my working title is Coronation Year. Uh, it's set in 1953, um, which is the year that that the young Queen Elizabeth was crowned. I mean, she became queen in 1952, but it takes a long time to plan these big big events. And um, and the setting for the book is is just a, a very small, modest, almost you know one of one of these places you would pass by without noticing it's a hotel um, that's been around forever uh, in London called Oliver's. It's completely fictional, I should add. Um, and Oliver's Hotel and the people who, who work there um, are caught up in the coronation because much to their surprise, when the coronation, um, when the parade route, the processional route is announced, um, it goes down their little street which is not normally what happens. And so I have, I'm actually looking at it now in my study, this huge map of the procession route for the coronation. Um, uh, and, and I can see the spot where I've, I've squeezed Oliver's hotel between two existing buildings. Um, and so there's the, the day-to-day story of, you know, that year and, and people's lives, uh, just as Britain really becomes to kind of, it, 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 it emerges almost from the chrysalis, really, of that kind of post-war um, austerity and, and, frankly, misery. And so we see, you know, it's it, it, the characters in the book um, 
really kind of, you know, figuring out how to how to live again. Um, but they're also then caught up in uh, there's a, a a vaguely suspicious suspense ish <laughs> moment uh, <laughs> in the book because there are some threats against the coronation and the safety of the queen, and it it seems increasingly that they're coming from the hotel itself. So uh, my characters have to figure out who you know who's the person who's 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 you know plotting against the coronation, and will there be some kind of an attack? Who knows? And um, all those thorny plot points are the things I'm working on now. Um, but I hope to have figured it all out uh, before too long. And that should come out sometime in uh, next year, if maybe maybe early 2023, but more likely 2022, which honestly seems like so far away. <laughs> but it apparently it's not. <laughs> it, apparently it is not. Well, I oh, cannot my wait. Goodness, yeah. I cannot wait to read that book, um, Jennifer. And I, I can uh, just extend the invitation now that when that book comes out, please come back and talk about it with me. Oh, I would, I would love to. I would love to. Well, our darkest night is on sale everywhere now. It came out a, a day or two ago. You can get it, uh, you know, in in real paper uh, if if you. Yes. Uh, you know, like to go to your bookstore and pick up books or Kindle edition or audiobook. I can't wait to listen to the audiobook of this. I think oh, it's, it's going to be fascinating. It's the same narrator as as uh, Marisa Callen, who did the gown. And she's done a lovely, lovely job in it. I should add that if, if people want signed copies, um, there are a number of independent uh, bookstores over the United States and Canada, uh, it, you know, all over the place, who have um, uh limited numbers of signed book plates um and they're these beautiful stickers that have been designed to go with a book that i've signed and um, they're free of charge you, if, if you go into the bookstore and, and buy your copy from them uh, they will give you one of the book the book plates and so the list of all the participating uh, bookstores is on my website at jennifer-robson.com that is fantastic news we're going to send everyone to your website to go check out where they can get uh, they're on autograph book plate and uh, to go with their book. Um, Jennifer, we also uh, are going to put uh, links uh, in the show notes where uh, to make it easy for people to find all of that good stuff. And uh, we'll send them over to see you. Thank you so much for taking time to come back on the show today. Thank you so much. Both Barrels Publishing is the brainchild of successful indie author James P. Sumner. He has self-published over 15 titles in the last five years and has over 800,000 downloads so far in his career, meaning he has a wealth of knowledge and experience to share with the indie publishing community. Knowing the struggles of the modern-day indie author as well as he does, he wanted to create a platform that would allow writers of any level to learn the ropes, navigate the pitfalls, and produce a professional novel without wasting time or money in the process. Both Barrels Publishing is the perfect one-stop shop for any indie author, combining James's expertise with his own team of editors and designers so you can help your novel realize its full potential and learn how to publish yourself. The purpose of Both Barrels Publishing is to help indie authors get their novels ready for publication without all the stress, hassle, and unnecessary expense. We want to make your lives easier, which is why we're giving you access to a top-notch team to publish your novels, along with a generous discount on their services. You can also work one-on-one -on -one with James to learn the intricacies of self-publishing. No hidden costs, 
no false promises. We simply want you to publish the best version of your novel. BothBarrelsPublishing.com